everyone. Welcome once again to the podcast, Conversations That Matter. I'm your host, John Harris. We have one subject today, and that is the first chapter of this particular book, Engaging with Keller. Now, this book is out of print now. It cost me a pretty penny to acquire it on, I think, Amazon is where I found it. It's probably over $100. And uh, if you can find a deal that's cheaper than that, it's actually a pretty good deal. And I don't know fully why it's out of print. I have a suspicion that maybe one of the reasons could be, and I I need to talk about this anyways before I get into the whole situation uh, with Keller, is one of the uh, editors of the book, uh, Ian Campbell, and I believe Ian Campbell is the one who also wrote the first chapter, which we're going to go over some quotes from, uh, did not end his ministry very well. I'm not that familiar. I just know that when I mentioned this book in the past, someone brought up to me, that Ian Campbell apparently committed suicide in the wake of the revelation or the potential revelation of an affair, and I don't really know anything past that. And, and I don't really need to know anything past that. Um, I do want to say this about uh, the book. Most of the chapters are not written by Ian Campbell. Uh, I think it, it might even just be the first one. But because he is a general editor, uh, this has, for some at least, been a point uh, which they, the people who like to defend Keller, perhaps, I don't know, but um, what I'm told is that they use this as a way of discrediting the whole, the whole work. And this is my encouragement to you, and this is a good opportunity to encourage the exercising of some legitimate discernment and good judgment. We, uh, in fact, and I'll, and I'll draw a parallel case to this, uh, I'm now a music director at my church, and one of the issues that arises often is what do you do with songs performed by people or sometimes even written by people who did not end well or their ministry has gone off or their their band or their if it's a soloist their theology has gotten odd and i think you use uh you use judgment you you there is some wisdom that must be applied if it's a very prominent name who is is very known for a particular kind of sin or heresy and if they uh, you know have the one good song and 90 uh, percent of their songs are terrible they're 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 converted to mormonism and that's what they sing about i don't know i'm giving you a hypothetical then even if it's a good song <laughs> you you may want to pull it from congregational worship just because you know it's going to distract, and that's really the issue, is it distracts from the rest of the service. However, that it doesn't make the song or the lyrics in the song necessarily wrong, especially let's say someone put a psalm to music and then ends their ministry poorly. Does that make the psalm poor? No, it's just, they, they happen to be artists that put music to it. And what I'd like to suggest, without getting too into detail about my grid for evaluating these things, is that in a situation like this, where you have someone who did not end well in ministry, uh, take the arguments they're making on their merits, because that's what this book is about. This book is about uh, the theology of Tim Keller and whether or not this theology conforms to biblical and orthodox standards. And if there's someone who, surprise, surprise, sins, (laughs) I sin, by the way, and uh, less so, hopefully, as time goes on, as I become closer to Christ. But if someone sins and they end their ministry in a state of sin, without repentance, let's say, that does not mean that their arguments or the observations that they had or the uh, 
just comparisons of faulty ideas to biblical ideas that they pointed out were in error. It, in other words, when someone brings something like this up to discredit a work, it ends up being more of an ad hominem. It's, it's against the man. It's actually technically a fallacy. And I'm used to it. That's the left deals with in this. That, that's their main argument is an ad hominem attack. They destroy people who are pose a threat to them and they will do anything. They'll string together a narrative. They'll uh, create a false narrative. And if they have something that's low hanging fruit like this, where someone legitimately did engage in some, some sin and end their ministry very poorly, uh, I think the, the tendency is to point that out and to, make that the issue rather than the arguments that that particular individual brought forward that were legitimate, that were legitimate. So uh, I want to just say that. I also want to say that I also put this book through my own grid and I wanted to uh, not just take for granted or for uh, take, take the word of the authors as truth just because they said it. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not doing another illogical fallacy, which is a, an appeal to authority. That's not why we're doing this book. And we're doing it because Tim Keller has some bad theology. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, and I wish it weren't true. I really do. I, I might share some of my personal experiences with Tim Keller theology and seeing it, especially in campus ministry, which I uh, am still involved with and used to be also involved with during the times in which I was introduced to Keller. And it's it's grieving because so many, so many, I, I think I don't even realize the extent to which Tim Keller has been influential, especially in college uh, ministry settings, urban ministry settings. Uh, not just there, though. It's beyond there. I mean, you have pastors in rural areas trying to implement Tim Keller things. It's just uh, pervasive. And... This is, I think, a good, this was a good attempt. This was published, I believe, in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. I'm going to just make sure of that as I look it up. First published in 2013. So it, it's uh, now, you're talking nine years ago, that this was published. I mean, that's ancient history, John, right? No, it's not. And I pointed this out before. In fact, my first book on social justice called Social Justice Goes to Church is about this very point that many of the issues that we're dealing with right now have been around. They just weren't as popular. You didn't see them in your circles as much. But believe me, the people who went to seminary, your pastors, your professors, if you are in seminary, a lot of these guys were influenced by more progressive evangelicals. And you can go back to writings even in the 1970s and see this. But with Tim Keller, certainly you can go back 10, 15 years, even uh, longer than that, and find what Tim Keller is saying now is what he said then, and what is coming out of the mouth of his followers now that you didn't expect to hear were the things that he was saying back in the 90s and the early 2000s. And, and, and this would not have been a surprise, I think, had people, in fact, this even applies to people in Tim Keller's church. I had someone I remember from his church say, well, you know, I never noticed this in Tim Keller, the social justice stuff, until recently. And I started looking through the sermon archives, and I thought, man, if, if you were listening in church, you would have seen this. But, And, and there's probably a, multiple reasons why we choose not to or we just don't see things that are right in front of us. <laughs> there, there's levels to this. But I think 
those who were paying attention did see this. And there were even some blogs back in the early 2000s uh, that were trying to shine a light on some of this and saying, hey, this Tim Keller guy, <laughs> he's going off the reservation. And it wasn't just social justice. It wasn't. And that's what this book highlights. And that's what we're going to talk about is the ways in which Tim Keller's theology is compromised. But, and, and it, much of this actually does parallel or at least does contribute to the social justice movement in evangelicalism, but it is not, you can separate it from that and it, it, it can stand alone. And the doctrine we're going to go over today on sin, uh, Tim Keller's understanding of what sin is, is much in that same vein. It's something that apart from social justice, this is a big, big problem. And when I first read this, I'll, I'll give you more of my ideas on this as we go through, but I, I was really struck with how how horrible, <laughs> how honestly, I dare I say, heretical, some of Tim Keller's views seem to be. And views that are, he's clever, views that you wouldn't notice on a first pass perhaps unless you're very shrewd and your ears are very open. Views which, if you're not looking for them, they don't just necessarily jump out at you because they're subtle. They're subtle shifts. But these subtle shifts lead to monumental shifts. And we've seen a monumental shift, I would say, in what calls itself the evangelical church. Not just politically, but a soft peddling of, a softening of, of many of the very orthodox, very rooted doctrines that we as evangelicals believe. Tim Keller has been perhaps the chief architect of the evangelicalism we live in today. He's not a detached observer. He is the builder in some ways. He is the architect of this. So as we go through this series, and I'm going to just go through each chapter, that's the plan at least, and how many chapters are there? I think there's seven or eight, uh, as we go through each chapter, I'm just going to give you what I think is a fair summation. I won't give you everything. You have to get the book if you want everything, but I'll give you what I think is a fair summation. And then you can draw your own conclusions. That's the goal here. You draw your own conclusions. And I think this is going to be beneficial. I really do. I think not just if you're someone, you may be someone actually who has already dismissed Tim Keller. You say, ah, he's not really orthodox or ah, he's not helpful and I would encourage you, listen anyway, because if it's not coming out of Tim Keller's mouth, it's coming out of someone else's mouth, someone that he might have discipled, even if he doesn't realize it, people following his example, and they're going to say some of the same things. And so you're going to need to know what's wrong with that. How do I respond to that? How do I even notice that there's an error there? So um, tremendously helpful book, and not because of the people necessarily involved. In fact, I am unfamiliar with the writings of, I'd say, most of them. I think the only one, if I look through this, the list of authors here, that I thought, oh yeah, I know who that guy is, might have been D.A. Hart, because I wrote, read another book of his. Uh, as far as the other authors uh, of this particular work, yeah, I can't tell you. I, I don't really know much uh, about most of them. Uh, yeah, I don't even I didn't even recognize, I think, and, and it's because they're coming from, I think, the Presbyterian world, and I'm just not as in that world. Uh, but yeah, D.A. Hart, I did recognize, D.G. Hart, see, I didn't even get his name right, it's D.G. Hart. <laughs> uh, I did recognize his name. 
So anyway, uh, let's go through it. We're going to start with uh, the chapter on sin and Tim Keller's view of that versus the biblical orthodox view of sin. Before we do, though, before we do, sponsor for this particular uh, program is the Standard Beard Care. And um, if, uh, in fact, I have a, a video, let's see if I can get to, I have a video queued for later on Tim Keller. Uh, but here's the, here's the uh, web page for the Standard Beard Care. And you can go to the standardbeardcare.com and you can find this web page. And, you know, the Standard Beard Care is a veteran-owned, uh, conservative Christian, I would say, company. And they have a good product. And if you go and order today, you can get some products. I suggest getting the balm, the beard balm, but there's all sorts of great products for the man in your life who has a beard. Or if you are that man, maybe you could just get yourself an early Christmas present, I don't know, for your own beard. And the the thing that, um, that makes this product, I think, really good is its comprehensive nature. There's, it's not like they just have one product. They have... They have beard oil. They have a beard soap. They have a brush for your beard. They they have just everything that you could need. Shampoo for your beard. I'm not at that stage yet. I don't need that. <laughs> My beard's too short. But uh, you know, at some point, if uh, if I decided to go all Duck Dynasty, maybe I would need that. And if you use the promo code Combos today, you can save on your order. So check it out: thestandardbeardcare.com promo code Combos. Well, let's get into the subject at hand now, which is Tim Keller. And I'm going to start with the introduction to this particular work and some quotes from it. So we're not in the chapter yet, but we'll get there shortly. In the introduction, which is by Ian Campbell and William Schweitzer, they say this on page 17. We gladly acknowledge that Keller intends to teach the orthodox truth. The question is whether or not he fully succeeds in this good intention in the specific cases considered below. We think that the root of the difficulty arises from the very challenging task that Keller has assigned himself to communicate the old orthodoxy in relevant ways to a contemporary postmodern audience. They say on, on uh, page 21, the problem comes in the way he chooses to express his orthodox faith. So here's what I, I want you to listen to what they're saying, the editors, versus what I think the conclusion that I'm drawing and what many of you will draw. The editors of this book are saying Keller's not a heretic. Keller's not a false teacher. Keller is just, you know, he's just a bit confused. He's just, uh, he has a, such a challenging task. And it, it's understandable that someone would get a bit off when they're trying to undertake this task that he's assigned himself here. He didn't have to do it, but you know, someone had to do it. Keller's doing it. And wouldn't you know, he got off a bit and he, he has an orthodox faith, but he just chose to express it in the wrong way. So uh, <laughs> the song makes sense. The lyrics make sense, perhaps. But the mode or the music, is, it just doesn't fit these lyrics. It, it's, you, you can see why some might start reading this book who have an issue with Keller and just put it down at this point and say, well, whatever. Like, this is, I, I clearly am not going to get the truth. And I would encourage you to keep reading because I think what I came to the conclusion at the end, I just thought the case that they're making is pretty strong against Keller here. And it's, in fact, it's so strong. I don't know how you draw a conclusion other than this guy is a subversive element in the church 
and he's peddling false doctrine. I don't really know how you get around that with all the things that are revealed here. And so I don't know if this is playing politics. I don't know if this is, you know, I'm sure they legitimately believe this in some sense, but I don't know why they chose to say this because listen to this. This is two pages down from page 21, page 23 in the introduction. They say this. We are concerned with the way Keller conveys some specific doctrines, such as teaching on creation that seems to legitimize theistic evolution, a teaching on sin that seems to overemphasize the impersonal effects of sin in this life and underemphasize sin as disobedience to the law of God, a doctrine of hell that seems to minimize God's role in condemning sinners to hell or meeting out wrath, a divine dance teaching on the Trinity that seems to undermine the eternal begetting of the Son as the procession of the Spirit, and a teaching on the mission of the church that seems to say that our given task is to transform the culture. Now, you read all this and you think, man, these are, these are a lot of issues and pretty, uh, pretty fundamental problems Keller has. I mean, the Trinity, really? A divine dance the teaching that undermines the eternal beginning of the Son as a procession of the Spirit? <laughs> I, I don't really know exactly how to read it other than you have a false teacher in front of you guys. That's, yeah, I, I'm open to people trying to convince me otherwise of this. But the more I read Keller, the more I think, man, this guy is good. This guy is clever. But where's, what road is he taking you on? Is it the narrow way? Now, I think someone can be saved through, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, I, I've met people saved within the Roman Catholic Church even. There, there's enough exposure to Jesus and to the gospel and to the Bible somewhere along the line, or at least there's, a, there, there's enough there to try to uh, in, get someone curious about those things that they end up finding uh, through God's drawing, of course, Jesus Christ, and they become saved. And I think that can happen. I think there probably are a number of people who have been saved perhaps even out of atheism or other things, um, and what God used to draw them perhaps could have been a Tim Keller book. I, th I think that's, there, there's nothing that tells me I have to say that all of the fruit of Tim Keller is, a, that, that it's an either or, whereas, uh, you know, every single thing t Tim Keller touches turns to dust, and it's, it's horrible. I think in general, yes, I think Tim Keller's uh, effect on, on, Christianity has been horrific, but God uses sometimes means, I mean, and in fact, he always uses means <laughs> that are uh, weak, it, it, preaching the word, I mean, fallen humans preaching, that's a weak means that God uses, and he gets credit for it, and so if he can use Balaam's donkey, if he can use Pharaoh, if he can, I think he can use Tim Keller, so I just want to kind of head that off at the pass, that for those who you know have found some truth in Keller, because there is some truth in Keller. The problem is it's mixed with error. And the error is what we are going to be focusing on today and throughout this series. So let's start with the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. Keller wants to move his readers, says Ian Campbell, who authored this chapter, away from the idea that sin can be defined merely in terms of breaking divine rules. That is, in breaking the commandments of God. 
He instead defines sin as that which replaces God in giving a person his or her identity. By identifying ourselves with race or status or ethnicity, we invariably develop enmity and hostility towards others, other expressions of race, status, and ethnicity. So this is Keller's rebranding of this doctrine of sin. And you can tell right away, this dovetails with what the world is telling us. This egalitarian impulse the world has, this globalist impulse, this sexual anarchy impulse to erase any line that might exist between people groups, between even gender, between nations, and uh, when it comes to eroding borders and uh, gaining more international oversight, even over medical decisions made in our country, you can see so many examples. Almost everything that's going on right now has to do with this, doesn't it? And what Keller is saying is that if you, that, that whole identity, put, seeing yourself as a particular race or status or ethnicity, you know, that's a problem. That, what, what happens is you start to then, uh, you start to quibble with other races, statuses, and ethnicities. And, of course, CRT kind of sidesteps this whole issue by claiming, the people who advocate it, that race is just a social construct. And so really what's happening in that is it's a, uh, it, it's purely an argument against oppression and oppressors uh, when you identify yourself as a minority. It's, it's not saying anything concrete about you. It's not rooted in anything that's physical, tangible, real, created. It's simply an artificial construction that people use to divide people up so they can oppress them. And Keller right now is, what he's saying dovetails very nicely with that. that. These identities are the barriers. These are what's getting in the way of human flourishing, of uh, the, the world that we could have if we just didn't have these identities that cause confusion and mistrust and war and violence and feuds. Why can't we just see ourselves in a more bland way, a general way? We're humans. I don't know. Keller doesn't say that here. But that would be the implication I would draw, is that, hey, if those things are all problems, then how should I see myself? I mean, you could say that even seeing yourself as a Christian would be divisive, wouldn't it? I mean, under Keller's logic. But this appeals to the zeitgeist today. Keller wants to move his readers from the idea that sin can be defined by breaking divine rules. So it's identity issues, not your action necessarily. It's It's not the fact that you're lying and stealing and murdering, although those, those are sins. It's something uh, in Keller's mind that goes much deeper, it, and that is that you got an identity problem. And guess what? Most of the people in our culture today have identity issues. They moved around a lot. They have broken families. They don't know who they are. They, uh, especially if they're uh, straight white males, they're being attacked constantly, and they try to distance themselves from who they are. And we just have a lot of problems with identity issues. I mean, it's actually something that I don't think the, the church, it, it, you know, it's time for the church to step up. Well, sure it is, but the, we're going to need a miracle from God because the church is not able to bear the strain of all the issues that are going to be coming upon the uh, at, at the feet of the church, at the door of the church. And it's, gonna, it's already putting a strain on pastors. Uh, it's, I think, a great strain on counselors, and it, there's just a, a lot of issues out there right now. And to come into this environment 
and just start saying that, you know, you have an identity problem. That, that's the issue. It resonates. It resonates. And Keller knows that it resonates. Well, let's get off on a good foot here. This is the issue with Keller already, uh, that he is defining sin differently. It's not, the rule breaking is very much uh, in the background if, if he talks about it at all. The identity issues uh, are very much in the foreground, and it's palatable today. But what does the Bible say? Does he get this from the Bible? Now, the biblical definitions of sin, there's many of them, uh, many passages that talk about this at least, but we could uh, start it with Leviticus 5.17. It says, Now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, he is still guilty and shall bear his punishment. Well, there you have it. Uh, what is sin? Uh, well, <laughs> doing things the Lord has commanded not to be done. James 4.17, so for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. It's not doing the right thing. First uh, John 3.4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's law. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is failing in these ways. Romans 8.7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. This is the dismal condition of humanity apart from Christ. There's not even an ability to keep God's law, to please him in that way. Now, I know that some have gone overboard with this doctrine to the point where they're saying, they, they say things that, uh, like, uh, we're so depraved that we can't do anything good from, a, and, and what they mean by it is from a temporal, earthly perspective. And, and this just doesn't comport with the biblical text, because, you know, Jesus talks about even the ungodly, even the, the the unrighteous, if their son asks them for a fish, do they give them a snake? Uh, no, and, and that's the uh, the obvious answer to that question. No, uh, there is, there are some natural instincts uh, that God has placed in man, uh, self preservation being one of them, and and these are good things. In fact, um, there is a law of God, as we see from Romans one, written on the hearts of humans. And the thing is, humans suppress that. They, they go against it, but there's a wiring that they have, despite the fact that we live in this biblically sinful world. And so when we're talking about mankind being thoroughly evil, not even being able to subject itself to the law of God, you know, we are talking about uh, doing so with right intentions, uh, doing so for, uh, for God himself, for the, you know, so the right reasons, motive plays into this. And, and this is, you know, w what happens in the court of heaven when you go before him and you say, Lord, you know, I protected my family. I led a good life. I didn't murder anyone. And the Lord says, and why did you do it? Your filthy, your, your righteous deeds were filthy rags. So this is what we're talking about here. Uh, the motive is very important. And uh, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, salvation in Christ, there's no way that humanity is capable of doing anything good. This is what the Bible talks about. Uh, everything that we do is going to be missing the mark somehow, in some way. It's going to be breaking God's law. It's going to be for, uh, there, there's going to be mixed motivations, uh, that an evil is going to be right there. So, this is what the Bible, is crash course here, this is not exhaustive, but this is what the Bible says about sin. That's very different than what you even have seen already from Tim Keller, but we're going to get into a lot more. 
Tim Keller says this in his book, Center Church. He says, when I first began ministry in Manhattan, I encountered a cultural allergy to the Christian concept of sin. I found that I got the most traction with people. However, when I turned to the Bible's extensive teaching on idolatry, sin, I explained, is building your life's meaning on anything, even a good, very good thing, more than on God. Whatever else we build our life on will drive our passions and choices and end up enslaving us. So you can already see this shift. You know, he, Tim Keller is saying, look, I'm in Manhattan. And I start talking about sin and, and I, I talk about uh, you broken God's law. If I, if I go down that path, I, I talk about what the Bible says about sin. People just turn me off. But I found that if I talked about idolatry and then framed it in such a way that, look, you're enslaving yourself when you do this. When you commit acts of idolatry, you are, don't you, don't you feel enslaved? And in, in Manhattan, this is easy. You're enslaved to your job. You might feel enslaved to certain passions and sinful tendencies you have that are, and maybe they're not even sinful necessarily in and of themselves. The motives perhaps could be, but uh, you, you know, you might even feel trapped in family situations that you know you should be in, but you don't want to be in. I mean, the the idea that people feel constrained and they want uh, liberation, they want freedom. I mean, that is all the rage right now. Everyone feels like they're oppressed or enslaved by something, and so if you can just tell them, look. You're enslaved to something. It's it's the cops. They're the ones keeping you down. It's you know you fill in the blank. Uh, then you know that resonates. People are like, yeah, you know I, I want to be free and I, I want my liberation and uh, man I just don't feel it. And and newsflash, no matter what happens in this life, and I'm talking about the greatest totalitarian regimes which we want to avoid as much as we possibly can to the most laissez-faire uh, situations in human history human beings, you, you could also always drum up this sense of dissatisfaction in humans, that there's some there's something outside their control, even if it's just the march of life and how we're going to die one day. I mean, there's something outside our control that's negative, that we wish wasn't there, that we feel constrained by. And so if you start on that foot, then Tim Keller's saying, look, I, I get more traction. And, you know, and he would, I would think, if, if that's his message. Is that look you you know you, you're damaging yourself instead of starting with you sinned against God. You see the difference. He says this. Uh, this is an article in 2008 that he uh, uh, an interview he gave I guess to USA Today. He said this. They do get the idea of branding of taking a word or term and filling it with your own content. So I have to rebrand the word sin. He literally said that I have to rebrand the word sin. Around here, and this is in his Redeemer Network churches. It means self-centeredness. So what is sin to Tim Keller? We talked about what it means in the Bible, but what to Tim Keller, sin just means self-centeredness. The acorn from which it all grows. Individually, that means I live for myself, for my own glory and happiness, and I'll work for your happiness if it helps me. Communally, self-centeredness is destroying peace and justice in the world, tearing the net of interwovenness, the fabric of humanity. And I think in general, people can get behind this. Even now, it's like, yeah, you know, even selfish people, uh, sometimes will readily admit that the issue that they face is uh, is some kind of a, a selfishness. It's funny to me how many people could correctly identify Trump's narcissism, or he's so self-centered. Sure he is. He's Trump. He's always been that way. But they neglected to see the ways in which they themselves were very self-centered. It wasn't perhaps as, as gaudy. It wasn't as flashy. But it's right there. Just go on your Instagram profile and see see what you see. It's the, the focus is very much on self. It's very much on uh, 
on one's own. And, and look, I'm not saying I'm exempt from this. Uh, it's, I don't really get on Instagram. I, I technically have one. I post every once in a blue moon, but, um, but I have other social media accounts and, and look, I want to, I want to look good. I want people to think well of me, right? That's a natural human tendency to, to some extent, I suppose. Uh, but you know, if I can even artificially make myself look good, I mean, that could be tempting. I'm thankful I, I lived for most of my, my childhood and then my early to mid teen years without much internet access or I didn't have a smartphone. I just, uh, anyway, I'm not, not getting on a, a whole thing about smartphones, but I think that's a tool that has greatly amplified this ability, uh, at least to make obvious one's concern for their own self, their own reputation, their own, um, and it's not wrong. Again, th these things in their proper context, being concerned for your reputation is not necessarily a bad thing, but when it becomes the driving force of your life to, to that you live through the, the opinions of others about yourself and and in, and you're not focused on how do you help others how do you love god and neighbor then, then you have a problem right biblically speaking because it's against the law of god um i think though self-centeredness today the way that many people look at it they only see certain shades of it as being authentically selfishness and there's there's a celebrity kind of uh, self-centeredness that's just not viewed that way by the world and so this is a this is a concept that has some some range to it and some I would say vagueness to it uh, enough that people in general will still assent to saying they're against that kind of behavior I'm against selfishness sure I'm a I think that people who uh, don't only care about themselves and CEOs that get golden parachutes and buy themselves yachts, but they don't care about the hunger in the world. I mean, that's selfish and we should really, you know, that kind of thing is the world responds to that and they consider that to be selfishness and they hate that. And so it's a particular kind of selfishness. But if, if, if you start the, the conversation off there, you can kind of hide in the vagueness. And, I, and I'm not, Keller's not saying he's doing that, but I, I think that's probably what ends up happening. I'm going to show you at the end of this kind of how, how Keller, even when he talks about the sin of homosexuality, how he maneuvers that whole conversation to, and I think one of the things is he kind of hides in a vagueness. He, he, he says things, they, they sound like they're fortune cookies. They sound very wise, but they're very confusing. And uh, he, he understands, I think, he's made a study of people in Manhattan. He understands how they think. And reifying words uh, or taking words that are negative to them, which I think is probably what's happening here, taking a concept or a word that is negative to those people, and then seeing where's the parallel in Scripture. Oh, Scripture also talks against selfishness. Man, we can use this. We can use this to communicate, to, to inject, without them maybe even knowing uh, an understanding of sin. He says this in Center Church, page 128, depicting sin as an act of misplaced love, not just a violation of law, is more compelling to many people in our culture today. Of course, a complete biblical description of sin and grace must recognize our rebellion against the authority of God's law. So this is where I think the problem comes in with Keller is the of course here. He's, of course, yeah, of course you, you have to recognize rebellion against God's law. I mean, that's of course that's part of it. But why, why take that for granted? Why just, uh, you know, it's not just a violation of law. 
you can see the priority that Tim Keller places on this. And we're going to get into this more as we unfold what, what the exact move that's happening is. Because this isn't all vague. There's, an, there's a real move that's happening, which is that there's a replacement. There's a switching out of consequences with causes. And we'll get into it. But he shows that he understands. He understands the orthodox teaching to some extent. At least he understands sins as a violation of God's law, the biblical teaching. He understands where people are at in Manhattan and how they're opposed to the biblical teaching. And so he comes up with his own term or his own. He fills the word sin with his own content. He rebrands it. Uh, he switches things up. And this is, at the very least, I would say, unbiblical methodology, praxis. You, you could say uh, this is you know, unbiblical theology, but even if you don't want to go there, you can at least say, well, this is a, a wrong application, which is what the authors, that's the case that they're making. Just a wrong application. He says in King's Cross, the book King's Cross, if you center on anything but God, you will suffer a loss of identity. You don't really know who you are. In the darkness, you can't see yourself. Now, this is the kind of language that I think Keller uses a lot, a lot. And I've gone over a number of his sermons on this. He constantly talks about how people are essentially alone at sea without any bearings. And that's true. And people resonate with it. And they're just looking everywhere. I saw this at the county fair this year with witnessing to people that so many of the younger people, especially, they're just open to anything. They'll, they'll, they'll go to the Christian booth and they'll go down to the witchcraft booth or something. They, they just, they're looking for something because they're so ungrounded. And so if you approach it the way Tim Keller approaches it, I think you will probably see uh, at least an, a, a receptivity initially it, it, that you would not see if you had, if you start with just what the Bible says. And maybe perhaps, maybe the allure here is we can improve upon the Bible. You know, that's what I keep thinking through all these issues with Keller is, man, he thinks he can improve on what the Bible says here. How can he say that? On a practical level, I will say this. If you start attracting someone with the wrong, in the wrong way, and you spend a lot of time with them, and then you reveal the real truth to them and they reject it, you've wasted a lot of time. It's better to reveal the truth and then see who God's drawing and then work with them. Inadequate definitions of sin. Here we go. Here's his, this is what Tim Keller says about sin. And these are, some of this is partially true, but again, inadequate. In the reason for God, he says, sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity and your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from him. He says on the same page, sin is not just doing bad things. They're doing bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. So he, what he's doing is he's taking idolatry and he's making that the cent that that is what sin is. It's idolatry ultimately. It's not just doing bad things. It's not breaking God's law. In other words, it's not just that. It's it's making good things into ultimate things. Now is is that true, John? It, can't you take good things? Didn't you just say that uh, you, you can do good things like loving your family for the wrong motives? And you're right. I did say that. You can make good things uh, into ultimate things. And you can do good things for wrong reasons. Um, but that's but, but again, wh where does this steer someone? What's the emphasis? Um, is this adequate? Is this an adequate definition of what sin is? The emphasis certainly isn't an adequate. It's not an adequate emphasis. The emphasis in Scripture is it's doing bad things. <laughs> it's disobeying God's law. 
That's what scripture says. You don't find this, uh, I mean, even idolatry is disobeying God's law again. So this is a weird, um, it's not a tension you see in scripture. Scripture doesn't have this tension where uh, you, you don't just have doing bad things, but also making good things and ultimate things. Scripture would just say this is all doing bad things. The sparing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Okay, well, that's, that's I mean, it's it's wrong, I guess. I mean, this is, again, so vague and, and kind of esoteric. It's even hard. It, it's not concrete enough. Um, but this appeals to postmodern people. But refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. This is, there's so many, like, issues I could see happening here. What if someone doesn't have a relationship with God? They, they're, they're not sons of God. They're not children of God. They're children of the devil. What is sin to them? Is sin refusing to find their deepest identity in their relationship and service? Well, they don't have one. So, so it can't be that. It, it has to be breaking God's law. And part of breaking God's law is idolatry. That is part of it. Uh, making idols in your mind of who God is when that's not who God is. Getting an identity apart from him. You know, th this is also weird to me. I mean, we have different layers of identity. And, you know, I have an identity as a member of my family. I'm a Harris, okay? So did I get that identity apart from him? Is that, I mean, am I, am I in sin for thinking of myself in those ways? I mean, you could easily come to that conclusion from reading this. This is sloppy stuff at best. But this is what oohs and ahs people in Manhattan. And... I don't know exactly. The, I mean, I, I know people have gone to the church, and I don't want to speculate on the demographic that goes there. But I think a lot of people also who have been alienated uh, in their minds from other churches and pursued secularism and so forth, and now there's a version of Christianity out there that speaks their language more. It hits the right notes, but it's it, it doesn't sound, and that's one of the, I think, geniuses of Keller, perhaps. His cleverness is demonstrated in the fact that he doesn't sound like your typical preacher. And I think that's what people, they want. They want a TED Talk. They don't want a sermon. This is TED Talk stuff. This is fortune cookie stuff. And <clears throat> and that appeals to, to a certain demographic. It's, it's a demographic more on the left, though, I will tell you. It definitely is. It's, it's not something that appeals to people on the right as much who want very concrete, just tell me the truth. This, you, and you end a Tim Keller sermon sometimes, and you're just like, I don't know what he just said. <laughs> But you feel good about it somehow, and you don't know how. You know, I feel smart. I feel like I, it was uplifting. It hit a high note, and it was an emotional experience. But what, what did it actually teach you? How did it actually make a difference in your life? He says this on page 50 of The Prodigal God. Um, he says, uh, he presents the older brother in, in the, the parable of the prodigal son as lost, yet who has no sins on the list. So when Keller argues, this is the... Uh, this is according to the author of this section. So when Keller argues that, quote, Keller says this, sin is not just breaking the rules, it is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, he is rather begging the question. To place oneself in the place of God is breaking the rules. The sin of the elder brother is a violation of the law. So if you read that book, you'll find that Keller makes this distinction. There's, there's the older brother, there's the younger brother. And, um, you know, they're, they're both evil, essentially. And the, the, we don't think of the older brother as evil because he kept the law. He didn't go off and become a prodigal son. So, you know, he, he's got a leg up. Keller's saying, no, 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 he's in sin. And he is. 
He is in sin for not wanting to celebrate the return of his brother. However, <laughs> however, they're both breaking God's law. That's the point. It's not that one is breaking God's law and one isn't. And so we can now come up with a new rebranding of sin based upon this, that sin is more than just breaking God's law, or that's just one part of sin. There's another kind of sin that doesn't break God's law, but is also sin because you're making yourself out to be your own savior. That's all rubbish because it's all sin. What the older brother did was sin. What the younger brother did was sin. Now, I would argue the younger brother went much deeper into sin, but they're both in sin. And it's violations of God's law. And that, so th this is the tension Tim Keller tries to strike, and, and that's the move. And, you know, I, I think I feel so bold as to say this is a, a move away from orthodoxy is what this is. Because if you, if you put, you know, rule breaking over here, uh, breaking God's law, and that's what sin is. And you say that's not, you know, that's under the umbrella of what sin is, but that's not a comprehensive definition of sin. Sin is also this other thing over here that is not that, that is making yourself your own savior. And you, you define that as something that's not part of the, the rule-breaking element. Then you're creating a distinction that the Bible doesn't create. And it enables you to talk to people who are secular in ways that Orthodox believers of the past would never talk to them. Because uh, you can then, uh, you, you can have, you have options. You can approach them as people who, you, you don't even have to get into that whole law thing. You don't have to bring, a, bring the law up as the thing that convicts them of sin. You just have to start talking about how they feel unsatisfied or unfulfilled, or they're just looking for their own identity on this journey. And, and then you can present that as, as the, uh, that, the great problem they have that Jesus can correct. And, and the thing is, See, there's some truth to this, but then, but that's, again, there's sin involved in that. That's the, that's the thing. So you, you're taking the edge that the Bible gives you, that sword of the law, and you're putting it on the shelf and saying, I'm not going to use that. You know, that. That'll cut too deep. Uh, that, that'll hurt them. They'll get pricked, and they, they won't want to listen to the rest of what I say when that's exactly what they need. They have to die to themselves. And you're, you're not going to find a way to take out that heart of stone uh, to, to help in that endeavor, at least, if you're not willing to take the sword. So that's, that's my issue uh, with this. Keller's thesis is this. Keller's basic thesis, according to the author, is both of our condition and God's remedy for it, is that our problem is, is the problem of idolatry, which may take many forms, but is basically the taking of things that are essentially good and worthwhile and making them our substitute gods. Our enslavement to them leads to a distortion of reality and a corresponding failure to experience the place, the peace of forgiveness. Only by treasuring Christ can the distortion be righted. That's Keller's thesis. The problem, of course, with this is that Keller absolutizes the prohibition of idolatry, which subjectivizes and relativizes the issue. He waters down idolatry to make it the driving force behind everything we do. It's this all-encompassing sin. You know, some some think that he got this from some some say he gets this from Calvin, human hearts and idol factories. Some say, well, you know, he got it from Kuiper because uh, Kuiper had this tendency to kind of, I, I guess, in some of his writings to make everything idolatry. And um, yeah, and I'm not here to comment on that. I just know that. Uh, 
it doesn't match what I've read, at least. Um, it, it, I don't think I could see Calvin on the streets of Geneva approaching things the way Keller's here, doing it here. Um, all, all I know is that Keller, when he does this with idolatry, I think he softens it. I think he softens it. And I think in the, in the case, if that's what he makes sin out to be, that's the main, the, the spring from which sin forms. And it's uh, things like, well, you know, you just love your family a little too much. <laughs> you, uh, it could be that, you know, you, you did something horrible, but it also could be something pretty innocuous that even comports with God's, uh, you know, what, what God wants you to do in general, he wants you to have a family and love your family, for instance, then you make idolatry out to be this very kind of nebulous thing that we, that we, we don't exactly know, perhaps in definite terms, when we're engaging in it, we just know we are. And the symptom is that we don't feel fulfilled. That's that's what you get when you go down this road. What do you do when people don't feel quite fulfilled and they're Christians and they're you know I'm not supposed to be doing this. I must be in idolatry somewhere. This this by the way can create some very guilty consciences. Despite what uh, it says on the front end, I know on the back end that's what this can do. All right, part of the problem with this approach is its subjectivity. The author says when Keller says in Center Church that the biblical theme of idolatry challenges contemporary people. It shows them that paradoxically, if they don't serve God, they are not and can never be as free as they aspire to be. He sounds more like a life coach than a gospel preacher. The primary focus of the gospel is to restore our relationship with God, not our personal well-being. This is to reverse the Pauline argument. For Paul, idolatry is the symptom, not the cause. And if you read Romans chapter 1, you will see this clearly. Paul talks about this great problem of idolatry arising in these uh, incremental, incrementally getting worse and worse and worse. And it's the symptom of doing what? Of forsaking the worship of the true God. That's what it is. It's forsaking God. Well, you know, how do we forsake God? Well, we, we sin against him. We sin. Idolatry is also sin. But so is sexual morality. So is disobedience to parents. So is, I mean, all the Ten Commandments you can go through. These are all sinful. Men love sin. Men love darkness. That's why they hate the light. It says in John. So so men run towards these things, these activities that they like, and they don't want the light shining on them. And it's, it's uncomfortable to think of that there's this God of light that will judge them. So what do they do? Come up with their own gods. Idolatry is more the symptom. Tim Keller reverses this. Tim Keller makes, instead of what Paul says about idolatry being this, this symptom, it becomes the cause. It's, it's, everything starts with idolatry, and then that's what actually motivates all your bad things. And if you just get rid of that idolatry, then you would be fine. Keller conflates the consequences of sin in people with sin itself. Sin becomes things like unfulfilled or unrealized identity. Keller's focus shifts in a subtle manner away from the God against whom the sin is committed. And this is the big man-centeredness of Tim Keller's theology. I don't care how reformed you say he is, how reformed you think you are because you read Tim Keller, this is not really reformed. Tim Keller is shifting instead of focusing on God and how we've offended him. It's more on how we've broken ourselves. In fact, oftentimes you'll hear this today, sin is brokenness. Instead of talking about sin, we'll talk about brokenness. It's And this centers it on the damage it does to people. Does sin damage people? Of course it does. Of course it does. 
But what's a greater crime? The fact that it offends God or the fact that it damages people? Obviously, it's the fact that it offends God. And people who are centered on themselves don't want to think about that God. They're still in idolatry. <laughs> so they to appeal to them on the basis of you're, you're hurting yourself and to make that the, the, your first step forward and the only step forward, perhaps, is not right. This is not biblical. This is not the pattern we see. You can certainly mention that. That's certainly part of this recipe that they've concocted. People who are engaged in sin have concocted. Uh, they don't realize they're, what they're stumbling over, as Proverbs says. But it is not the primary or the root issue with sin. It's not why. It doesn't, it, that's not what makes sin sin. It's not definitional to sin. Uh, it's a consequence of sin, not the definition of it or the cause of it. Here's the danger. Keller's definition of sin as a false identity ultimately fails. By itself, it cannot explain the cross. Think about it. If, if sin is just this idolatry, if this making yourself your own savior, if that's what sin is, what, did Jesus, what was Jesus doing? He came to do what? To live a life we couldn't and pay the debts that we owe God. What are those debts? Those debts are we've broken God's law. There's a penalty for doing that. Keller doesn't really, and we're going to get into the penalty stuff when we talk about hell and how Keller, even in that, is man-centered, that we, we choose hell. It's, he takes C.S. Lewis's line. We choose it. It's locked from the inside. Ridiculous, really. But I mean, there's a point to be made that people, their actions are what <laughs> brings them there, their, their sin. But... It's not, it's not as if God is just kind of aloof from this process. Of course God is involved in this. God is the one that is punishing sinners. Keller's definition of sin is cannot explain the cross. And Keller does explain the cross. I mean, he does talk about substitutions and all this, but he, it doesn't make sense with the definition of sin he gives. Without qualification... Such subjectivism can actually serve to turn the gospel on its head. The nature of sin is not idol-making, but law-breaking, of which the manufacturing of idols is a specific example. So, great point. I mean, the nature of sin is not idol-making, it's law-breaking. So, if, if law-breaking is not the issue, then there's no reason Jesus had to come. And we've neglected what the Bible says about sin. The condition of man under sin is much more serious than Keller's presentation would suggest. We do not simply manufacture idols. We are enslaved in a condition of uh, Im implacable hostility to God. Now, the, he's riffing off of the John Calvin quote here about uh, having a heart that's an idol factory. Um, I think, though, th this is a, an important point to make, that... Tim Keller's trying to give the impression he's going deeper. Man, it's more than just those fundamentalists who wag their fingers at you about drinking or something. Something sinful they think is sinful. It might not, not even be sinful. It's not them. I'm, I'm Tim Keller. I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to tell you it's idols. How about we go deeper than Tim Keller? Deeper than Tim Keller means we're enslaved in a condition of hostility to God. We start out. The default setting is sinful. We don't, you know, there isn't this option that we can go through life if we just don't sin. That option doesn't exist because we are by nature sinful. We're in Adam. That's the problem. 
that's even deeper. It's part of our very nature, not something we choose for ourselves, some idol that we create that damages us and, oh no, we need Jesus now. No, it's part of our, our very identity uh, that, or the core of our nature, I should say, is set up against God. And that is why we sin. That's why we do things uh, that are contrary to God's law. Guilt cannot be explained without reference to the law. The weakness in his discussion is that the categories of law by which he explained Jesus' death and his being made sin for us are not the categories of, by which he explains our own native guilt and sin. Our derangement is not merely our self-centeredness. It is our law-breaking. Again, so you know, why are you guilty? You know, who did you offend? If you just hurt yourself, if that's the great problem, then why feel guilty? You feel guilty because you know you broke God's law. And that's one of the problems that um, Keller's approach cannot really satiate that guilt. Now, here's the result for believers. Keller concludes his analysis of the story of Jesus from Mark 2 concerning the Sabbath, that because the Lord of the Sabbath said it is finished, we can rest from religion forever. The author says Keller has done the church a disservice with the suggestion that faith in Christ is the end of religion. And I thought about this. I thought about this. If Sabbath keeping is not important anymore, what other things are not important anymore? How many churches are going to be closed on Christmas this year? Question. If obeying God's law is not important because we can rest from religion now forever. If, if, if Keller gives, I don't, I don't want I don't know if I want to call it easy believism. Keller's got sort of a unique, it, it is though, it is kind of. If it, it's not the old kind style easy believism though, it's different. I don't know exactly in what ways it's, every way it's different, but it's, Keller gives the impression here that sin really isn't as bad as the Bible makes it out to be. It's, it's this damaging to yourself thing. And so he acts like a life coach, comes before you, and you, know, you just got to worship God, find your rest in God, find your, find your identity in God, and you know, reject it. You don't find your identity in your, in your place or your race or your, your gender or what, you know, whatever. You, you find it all in God, and then you'll be satisfied. And, and, and then uh, you know, you're good. Like you don't need, he downplays religion so much. The, the rule keeping isn't important. It's not even what sin is. Uh, and then once you're, you're saved, you know, that whole religion thing, you can rest from that forever. You don't need that. You don't need that. You just need Jesus, right? That's, that's the play here. And that really is palatable to people who are, have a, they, they are against the old style religion, the old religiosity, which by the way, is the only way you can really have transcendence. <laughs> that's one of the problems. Uh, they, they reject all that, the forms, the rituals, the observances, the laws, all of that. And there are legalistic churches. I, I get that. But I'm saying the whole, everything's thrown out. The baby with the bathwater. And then, you know, the only thing is you just got to find yourself in Jesus. And that's about it. There's nothing else to it. That creates in unbelievers a lack of, well, why would you even want to go to church then? You don't have to, I guess. You think? You know, Keller would probably appeal to you that this is going to enhance and it's ne or maybe even it's necessary for, you know, to know God. You, but I mean, really, at the end of the day, if, if you got the Jesus thing down, you, you understand uh, that you, your identity is in Jesus now. You don't, you don't need all that other stuff. 
right? All that other stuff just causes division. It's opportunities for more idols. Man, maybe you could be too proud of even your church or your community. So you see where I'm going with this. I have noticed a general trend, and people who I think are influenced by Keller um, very well could be a part of this, that to even Christians today devalue more and more and more the, the past tradition, but really the old religiosity. And this eats into even the law of God. They downplay it so much to focus on supposedly the person of Jesus. But Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So they're, they're, they're missing out on actually something that is more rich and deeper because they think that it's a barrier to them having a relationship that's rich and deeper with Jesus. I think this is part of the fruit of Tim Keller, of his theology on this particular point. People don't fear God. Why would you if you believe in Tim Keller's construction? The fear you should have is a fear that you might accidentally or on purpose create an idol that makes you miss out on the good things of life and uh, gets in the way of human flourishing. I mean, that's the fear that you have now. It's man-centered fear. It's not a fear of God. It's not a fear of breaking his law. So this pacifies Christians. This, the, the thing that today that we need probably more than anything is a fear of God. However... That fear is lacking from the church, from so many who claim to be Christians, even legitimate Christians. They're just not on that wavelength much. I think Tim Keller's partially to blame for this, to be honest with you. Now, what effect does it have on unbelievers? For this, I decided I wanted to play for you a clip. This clip is uh, from, I believe, 11 years ago. And this is Tim Keller at Columbia University. And... In this particular video, Tim Keller uh, decides to answer a question on homosexuality. It's, I don't know if we'll play the whole thing. It's a few minutes. There's so many clips I could play, actually, of Tim Keller doing this, I was noticing. But this is one I remember. very. It stands out in my mind. And I just thought, this is, this is the one that I want to play for you. So here we go. Tim Keller at Columbia University answering a question on homosexuality. And I, I would assume this is to an audience that, I mean, he, he's navigating this in somewhat of a, a hostile kind of audience to Christianity. Again, 11 years ago, okay? So this, <laughs> imagine trying to do this today. I don't think you could get away with what Tim Keller's trying to get away with, but I think there's Christians today influenced by him thinking that they can. So here we go. Of the gay rights movement because I was appalled by the oppression and the discrimination against homosexuals in my America. Um, and this questioner asks, what do so many of the churches have against homosexuals. And what about your church's approach to homosexuality? Is it a sin? Are they going to hell? Um, let's talk with my, about my church first, which will be a little easier than, than trying to answer for all the other churches of the world. But I'll try. <laughs> I mean, I'm representing all the churches of the world, all right? You know? <laughs> Yeah, but Christianity. I mean, yeah, you, I know. Well, let me let's start you, with mine. You, you you go to the Bible quite often, and there are many Plenty. evangelicals who will yeah. say it is listed as a sin in the Bible, right in the Bible right. and these people are going to hell. Right now, what you now? What's wrong with what he said? He's offended by this, but what is he incorrect? It's listed as a sin, and the people who do it are going to. That's almost verbatim certain Bible verses, not just about homosexuality, other sins too, but, but yeah, that's, this is the perfect inroad to, which is why we need Jesus. And if they want to laugh at him, they laugh at him, but this is 
This is the truth. What does Tim Keller say? Uh, let's talk about my church again. <laughs> let's go back here. What we would say is, I think it's unavoidable. I think most Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox Christians over the years have said, you read the Bible, and the Bible has reservations. The Bible says homosexuality is not God's original design for, for sexuality. Okay, th there you, are, you have it. The Bible also says love your neighbor. The Bible. So he's already sidestepping the that it's a sin. It's it's he, he's softening it into it's not God's design. I mean, what he's saying is accurate, but I, I just want you to notice he's not just embracing what would be the biblical teaching that has been thrown at him, which is that it's a sin. People who practice it are going to hell uh, for that sin, just like any other sin. He instead wants to soften it as uh, it's more from a, um, uh, a, a an affirming standard instead of a, a, a positive instead of a negative. So the positive being that the, the best thing for humans is marriage. And uh, and at this point, actually, this is before, this is pre-2015. So, I mean, this is a different world he's giving this in. I would argue today it would be much harder to do this. But, um, so so not trying to be nitpicky here, but I'm, I'm this is the on-ramp. In fact, the Good Samaritan parable, which is how Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, you put a Jew and a Samaritan there. So what Jesus is trying to say is everybody is your neighbor. Gay people are your neighbors. Uh, people who are of other faiths are your neighbors. People of other, other uh, uh, races are your neighbors. And it's the job of a Christian to do what Jesus did on the cross, which was to give himself for people who were opposing him, uh, people who were diff believe, didn't believe in him even. And so a Christian is supposed to say, I serve the needs and interests of all of my neighbors in the city, whether gay or straight, whether they're Hindu or Muslim. I mean, Hindus, for example, don't believe in the Trinity. It's a different view than what the Bible says. Gay people have a different view of sexuality than generally what you see in the New Testament. I'm supposed to love my neighbors. So what I don't see is at this point, I see some churches that are basically ignoring the places in the Bible that talk about homosexuality in order to love their gay neighbor. And I see other Christian churches taking very seriously what the Bible says about homosexuality, but in a very self-righteous way. So th this is interesting, and this is, again, the third way. Tim Keller does—this is his play all the time. He, he sets up a binary. There's these people who are wrong on both sides, and then he gets to be the one to navigate this. And I mean, look, and he's so wise and brilliant, and um, there are situations where there's two opposing sides, but for Keller, it's like every issue becomes this, it seems. So in this circumstance— there's people who I suppose are legitimately loving their neighbors and Keller more or less endorses them as Christians in some form, but they don't take the Bible's prohibitions against homosexuality seriously. There's already, I think, a, a bit of a I mean, soft peddling here that those who don't take there, there's an openness that people who are being unbiblical um, on the issue of homosexuality they may have some really good motives. They may uh, just want to love their neighbor, and that, and that is, in fact, what they are doing. But so, so you can see how knowing what you know already about Tim's stance on idolatry and how idolatry is, this, is what sin is, it's not law-breaking, is, I think, already starting to play into the way he navigates even this question. Because, and you'll see it even more, I think, as we go through it. It allows him to soften certain things. 
even the, the law of God, which is sharp, it's a sword, Tim Keller can take that and, and dull the whole thing up and, and make it so it doesn't really hurt the people in the audience too bad because, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, there, there may be good motives for some Christians to go the route of not uh, taking the Bible's law very seriously. Uh, and it's, there may be, uh, you know, he doesn't really do that for the more... He sort of does, I guess. You know, there, there may be good motives for those who want to take it seriously, but th- these are the kind of Christians that everyone doesn't like because they're they're equally bad, is what I'm trying to say. They're equally bad because they're too forceful. They're too against homosexuality. They're just not loving their neighbor. And so what's the resolution to this? I mean, he, he's kind of like the question he wished the interviewer, I think, asked was, you know, how do we love homosexuals and view it as a sin? That's not the question that he was asked. But he's trying to... He wants that to be, I think, the question he was asked. And so that's the, the he's going to give the audience a perception of Christianity that, uh, you know, we can hold to the law over here, but at the same time, we can also do, we can do the loving thing. And, um, well, let's keep going in this, and then I'll, I'll give you some more thoughts on the idolatry connection here. Do single out gay people. I mean, there are a number of conservative churches that will love their Hindu neighbors and will love their Muslim neighbors and not their gay neighbors. And I really don't think there is any excuse for that. So is, that's, that's it, what so, there, so there's no excuse for that. But is there an excuse for, it seems like there's an excuse for the soft peddling, to love your neighbor, soft pedal homosexuality. But there is no excuse for someone who then takes the biblical command so seriously that they fail to love their homosexual neighbors, whatever that is. Again, it's super vague. But it, I mean, I, 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 therefore, I have to take some responsibility of being a member of the Christian church for the oppression of homosexuals. Are committing homosexual acts a sin against God? Uh, what do you mean by sin? Okay, here's the follow-up question. I'm, I'm trying not to focus on it, because I could, like, everything Tim Keller says here, I'm like, no, I'm going to, he just took a, responsibility for the the entire Christianity's <laughs> supposed oppression of homosexuals. I'm just like, so he, he, today that would not be a good move to make. Uh, but back then it probably seemed palatable at the time. So the interviewer follows up because he's like, he's, he's thinking what I'm thinking probably. He's like, you didn't answer my question. So what's the question? The answer is yes. Yes. Now the reason, see, here's the problem with that. So why didn't Tim Keller say that initially? Is homosexuality a sin? He said now he, now he says it's yes, but he's got to qualify it immediately. He can't just say yes, and uh, it, it's there's other sins that are also wrong, but this one is a sin, and you better repent and believe because fear God. Why is that? Why why is there no fear of God in any of this? Immediately he's got to qualify it. No, you don't go to hell for being homosexual. But committing homosexual acts will go to, get you to go to hell? No, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Right. No, because you know, so, some people will well, say, no, yeah. well, it's not the homosexuality or being gay, it's being doing gay stuff. No, That's the problem. No. No, I, first of all, heterosexuality does not get you to heaven. I have. Wait. <laughs> well, the interviewer has like better theology than Keller. He's like, wait a minute, isn't. So, so doing these acts, doing homosexual acts, isn't that. Doesn't that get you to hell? Like, doesn't the Bible say this? Keller's not quoting scripture that does say this. Instead, Keller's making jokes. Happen to know this. <laughs> In case you, you missed it, he's saying, you know, hey, heterosexuality doesn't get you to heaven. This is a G.D. Greer 
uh, repeated this years later, uh, I think in that, that infamous sermon on Romans 1, that you know, homosexuality doesn't get you to hell because heterosexuality doesn't give you, get you to heaven, which is like, you know, it's, it's, it's like saying like uh, stealing things doesn't get you to hell because, uh, you know, giving things away doesn't get you to heaven. It's like that's that's the it's dumb reasoning. It, it's it doesn't. The, the point is that there are there are sins that do uh, that the Bible says do bring you into judgment. That's the point. And he can't just fully accept that. He has to do this weird kind of dance. Right. So how in the world could homosexuality send you to hell? I just, it, it, and actually, uh, the Bible, listen, this is, this is true. Jesus talks about greed 10 times more than he talks about adultery, for example. Now, this is the Bible whispers about sexual sin moment for Keller. One of the problems Christians have here is partly, let, let's be nice to Christians. You know when you're committing adultery. I mean, you don't say, oh, you're not my wife. I mean, you know you're committing adultery. <laughs> but, but almost nobody knows when they're greedy. I mean, nobody thinks they're greedy, you know, because everybody is comparing yourself to other people, and so it's a frog in the kettle kind of thing. Uh, however, the fact of the matter is, the Bible is much harder on greed materialism, and it's a horrible sin, terrible sin. Well, will greed send you to hell? No. What sends you to hell is self-righteousness, thinking that you can be your own savior and Lord. What sends you to heaven is getting a connection with Christ because you realize you're a sinner and you, and you, and you need intervention from outside. That's why it's, a, it's very misleading actually to say, even to say homosexuality is a sin because most people, yes, of course homosexuality is a sin because greed is a sin, because all kinds of things are sins, but what most Christians mean when they say that, and certainly what non-Christians think they hear when they hear that is, if you're gay, you're going to hell for being gay. It's just not true. Absolutely. Okay, here's, here's the issue here. Keller has now, he has played with God's law in really fundamental ways. He has said basically all these things that are sins, yeah, they're sins, because he has to, the Bible says they're sins, but those aren't, those aren't judgmental offenses. In fact, if they're not judgmental, if they're not offenses that are worthy of judgment, then I'm not sure why you'd feel guilty for them. I'm not sure why you'd need Jesus. But, th but he says these are not offenses worthy of judgment. Uh, we're, we're, these aren't the things that send you to hell. I mean, I don't, I don't know how. Maybe he, if he was here, he'd disagree and say, no, I do think those are worthy of judgment. And so, but like, we're playing word games at this point. What's everyone hearing in the audience? Those don't send you to hell. No thief, no lie, no adulterer will inherit the... Anyway, <laughs> all liars will have their part in the lake of... Well... We don't want to get all biblical here because the Bible is going to contradict what Tim Keller says. But what does he do? What, what is his substitute for the law then? He said it right there. The thing that gets you sent to hell is your own self-righteousness, thinking that you're your own savior, basically, which is what we've been going over today. It's the idolatry thing. It's the, there, there's, there, there's the one distasteful thing that's also, j just like he said, greed is kind of subjective. He, he picks something else that's subjective. And he says, you know, that's, that's the, the thing that gets you sent to hell, trying to be your own savior, thinking too much of yourself. Like, that's, that's what sends you to hell. So he's, what, what in effect is happening is Tim Keller is using a very, uh, I think, sophisticated, clever way, uh, reasoning to 
implement a new standard, a new law, and it is palatable with the new law that's coming upon us. I pointed this out last week with uh, the reaction to uh, alleged uh, white supremacy or anti-Semitism and how in about 0.5 seconds you can get universal condemnation, even from people that are in that conservative Christian kind of side of things. And it's like it's the worst thing you can possibly do is say something that even could be construed that way. That's why I say we're all woke now. I mean, that's like after 2020, especially like even the 90 percent, I think, of the people who say they're not woke have a bit of wokeness in them. Maybe that's still is that too high? 60 percent, 70 percent. It's a it's a majority. I think the people who think they're not woke, they don't realize where they actually are <laughs> uh, because they've they've now adopted. So most of us have adopted a new standard where we downplay certain things that, that just aren't as important. But the God says they're important. Uh, like, for example, uh, sexual the, the sexual anarchy before us, it, it doesn't really get castigated even in our circles until it's full-fledged like pedophilia or drag queen library hour, grooming. Uh, it, I mean, it's got to be pretty bad. And, and even then, the left doesn't accept it, right? But, you know, things like adultery, things like uh, unjustified divorce, things like the, the side B revoice theology. I mean, these are not, these aren't, you know, you'll hear on this podcast how this doesn't comport with God's law and this is evil. You're not going to find it uh, in the greater conservative Christian world. You're just not. But boy, man, if you say, even if it's not, you know, hatred for another person of another ethnicity, if you just happen to misstep by, you know, saying something that could be even deemed racially offensive, man, you're done. And, and so this is just one example. I think there's probably many examples of where our standards are very much changing. And it's not that it's not it's, it's obviously wrong to hate someone of a different uh, racial background or something and to say hateful things to them because of that on the basis of that. Uh, the thing is, though, we we want to have a standard that is shaped by the Bible more than anything else. I think it's wise to go to tradition and church history and to see how this has been applied in other eras by godly men uh, who had blind spots, I'm sure, just like we do. But it's the standard is, is God's character, which is we find in the Bible. We find that in special revelation. And um, we, have, we have a clear example of this as Christians who have all the Bible studies tools in the world available to us. Kim Keller, though, is softening all of this it, it's obvious to me his standard is not there's there's another influence here that's creating a new standard and it might be a synthesis with the bible but it's not coming from the bible directly at all absolutely not true so then what's the how is homosexuality a sin i'm not well almost this is such a good question so you, you just he's picking up what i just said uh so how is homosexuality even a sin tim keller if you, you just you're saying it doesn't send you to hell so, but it's, so you're still saying it's a sin though. How? Greed's a sin. In other words, it's not, doesn't help human flourishing. Basically, bingo, that's where it is. It doesn't help human flourishing. Not because it offends a righteous, holy God. It doesn't help human flourishing. That's a man-centered view of sin, folks. Christianity has an account of what we think human beings were built to do, and what will therefore help human flourishing. So we would say, if you spend all your money on yourself, that's bad, not only for your own soul, but for everybody else's. 
we would say homosexuality is not the original design for sexuality, therefore it's not good for human flourishing. We want people to do things that are good for human flourishing, but that's not what sends you to heaven or hell. Now there, maybe we ought to talk about that. <laughs> uh, what sends you to heaven or hell really has to do with your faith in the gospel, which is that you can't uh, be your own savior through your performance and your good works. Now here, I'm, I'm coming at this at a pro, like a Protestant now. You know, um, everybody's got to be a particular... I think the Orthodox people that like Keller, they hear they, they wait for these certain Orthodox things he says, and they, they say, oh, good, he said it. He said, I mean, obviously that's incomplete. It's what Jesus did. Uh, but yes, the starting point is you got to realize that you can't, you can't make it there. But in the process of saying all this, he just said that the problem with homosexuality isn't that it sends you to hell. It's that it just is bad for human flourishing. And that's the Christian position on greed, apparently, too. They, they're just bad for us. They're, they're like, it's like eating uh, candy instead of broccoli. Uh, that's, a, that's apparently where homosexuality is. I'm a Christian, and there's difference of opinion within Christianity about this. But uh, no, being gay doesn't send you to hell, and, and, and sin doesn't send you to hell like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the sin underneath the sin is, I am my own Savior and my Lord. And that's the reason why Phariseeism, moralism, Bible-believing people who are proud and think God's going to take them to heaven because they're good, that's sending them to hell. So this is a very uh, persuasive way on an audience that's already uh, wanting to hear this kind of thing to convince them that it's those fundamentalist, Christian nationalist types, those really uh, serious about their Bible Christians, or, or the ones who, who just really want to apply God's law. You get, you get into this weird place where God, breaking God's law doesn't send you to hell, but boy, sure, applying God's law to people can send you to hell. Do you see this? Applying God's law to people can send you to hell, but breaking it, nope, that doesn't send you to hell. This is actually pretty disgusting. This is actually it's so unbiblical, it's amazing. But Keller somehow gets away with this kind of thing. Now, what's the effect of the people in the room? of the Christians in the room, or the non-Christians, what are they going to take away from this, you think? Are they going to be like, oh, I need to go to Jesus? Because uh, I, I, you know, no, they're going to say, they're going to think, man, I guess I don't need to feel guilty for that. Uh, you know, that's, uh, that's Keller's view, but uh, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't have anything to fear, or, you know, Keller doesn't seem to be too, too concerned about my homosexuality or my greed or other sins. And, you know, as long as I don't impose biblical laws on other people, and as long as I'm, uh, you know, I'm cool with Jesus, that I, I realize I can't really get there on my own, I need Jesus, then I guess I'm good. I guess I'm good. I mean, this is, this is the death knell for the church. This is not a way to survive what, what's, what at that time they thought was coming and is now here. This is a way to make sure that we don't survive any of that. And it was a, uh, you know, a mechanism for staying longer, for having influence longer, but ultimately, uh, this is, it might get you liked by certain people because you're not focusing on the rock of offense here. But you, in the long run, it, will just, it just kills the church. It, it subverts your own people. I mean, I know this is a lot to take in at once. It's a lot. I'm, well, yeah, I mean, I want to get back. In, but in, inside our church, right. there's, therefore, there's just not going to be this disdain of homosexuals. It right. just can't be. Not when I'm teaching the gospel like that. Well, there shouldn't be a, a disdain of homosexuals, but there should be a disdain of homosexuality, and there should be a recognition that the people who practice it are going to hell. That's, I'm, that's the Bible. I'm, I'm not, 
convince me where in the Bible it says what Keller's saying here. You know, show me that all the verses on this don't actually say what they say. That's what you'd have to do. All right, well, I hope this was helpful for everyone. This is just the uh, first installment in uh, the series on this particular book, and we'll go through more as time goes on. A quick announcement for everyone who's waiting, the patrons who are waiting on the Richard Weaver book that we're going to discuss. That is still going to happen. My dad's been sick, and I'm going to do it, I think, with him. I was going to do it with my brother, but he moved on me. (laughs) So uh, probably my dad and I. And we're going to... Uh, do it this exclusively for patrons and then uh, you know they can participate in some way but then we're going to air it for everyone on this channel so you won't miss out even if you're not a patron but you won't be able to ask questions or participate so that is going to happen I don't have a date set yet but will soon and um, I appreciate all the patience with me as I worked up to this Keller stuff I hope it's valuable for you as a, as a believer in understanding where he's coming from and, and really the damage that's been done God bless. More coming. Bye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.